Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3. Over the years, God has blessed me with some tremendous examples in my life. Just in a, in a life sense, but if we were to fast forward to uh, uh, a church sense, um, he has given me some, some just terrific men of God uh, to put before me that I could see their example and, and follow their example. And there is good reason for us to have examples in our life, and indeed, uh, this is biblical. I remember on my very first day of seminary, kind of wondering, what am I doing here with all of these other fellas that uh, I felt were so much more learned than me? And everyone was going around um, during, a, a, I think it was literally the first day, and kind of an orientation, and, and just sharing what brought them to the Master Seminary. And as you might imagine, for many of the fellas, it was John MacArthur. Uh, and, and rightfully so. Um, but for me at that point in my life, I didn't really know who John MacArthur was. All I knew was I was at this seminary because of the men in my life that had gone there previously. And I was able to look at them and see their example that they set as being men of God, men that, that had been trained there, that knew the Word of God, and, and that goes back to people like Pastor Jack and Pastor Justin and Pastor John and other men here at Calvary Bible Church, both pastors and elders, that were my examples. I will never forget when, when Pastor Jack was here candidating and he sat here on this platform on a stool as questions were coming at him right and left and all he did was answer them with this. And that just blew me away. What an example. Other pastors here at Calvary as they preached and taught and poured into me the elders um, that I was able to see and witness. And of course, I had a couple of aces in my pocket in Brock Boldy and Tim Carnes also coming alongside and discipling me. We had the other men at TMS that, that were of tremendous influence. My wife and I look back on that time in our life when I was in seminary and we were here at Calvary Bible Church as being such an amazingly rich time of examples in our lives. And we're going to see why that's important here in a few minutes. This morning we're going to do something just a little different. It's been almost three months since we kicked off Titus 3, 1 to 7, and we have gone through that text, verses 1 to 7, expositionally, verse by verse, and taken much time with it. Um, of course, we took a little detour when we got to the work of the Holy Spirit in salvation so that we could also dive a bit deeper and understand better who the Holy Spirit is. So we added three more parts there concerning the Spirit. But there was something that I, that I really wanted to focus on and just come back to in regard to verses 1 to 7, which really amount to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the godly living that should follow all who believe in the gospel. 
the kind of special something here that I, I want us to look a bit further on is part of the purpose and plan in God saving us and us living Christ-like lives so that others will have the opportunity to do the same. That's it. That others would have the same opportunity as us to hear the gospel, to believe the gospel, to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This has been one of the themes of Titus, and it's one of the reasons the elders and I picked the book of Titus, because we wanted to emphasize the need for us as Calvary Bible Church to be out there as the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. A light that is, that is on a lampstand for all to see, not under a basket. And I just, I, I love that it's happening now because I think there's no better time for us to focus on the gospel than Christmas time. Amen? Okay. Though there will be plenty of people I know out there in the world that will still not want to hear the name Jesus, at least at Christmas, it might be a little more expected, you know, that the name Jesus gets tossed around out there just a little bit. He still is the reason for the season, right? I mean, no Jesus and millions of people would not be getting December 25th off of work. No Jesus, and we would be writing December 25th, 6,023, or maybe 8,023, maybe 10,023. But for non-Christians, can you imagine? They would be writing December 25th, 4,500,023. That's 10 places. They're going to have to make the little line on your checkbook a lot longer, right? To accommodate. Now, in any case, let's, let's use the, these verses 1 to 7 to just kind of kick us into high gear. And maybe for some of you that means kicking you into any gear for the sharing of the gospel at Christmas. And through the rest of your lives, of course. With that, why don't we go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. Let's, let's read again verses 1 to 7 of Titus chapter 3. Paul... In writing to Titus concerning the churches there on the island of Crete, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of God. You may be seated. 
And so, in considering this, I, I offer you four, four kind of headline points this morning in regard to the gospel and evangelism. Yes, at Christmas time, but for always, right? And, and really, what needs to happen first is you and I, we need to have a heart for the people we're evangelizing. We have to have a heart for the lost, And this is back in Titus 3, verse 4, when he says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Now, simply put, God has a love for his creation. And he put that love into action by kindly sending his Son as our Savior. Friends, if you and I don't have a heart for the lost, as wicked and evil as they might be, you will never be properly motivated to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them. You just won't be. You won't do it. You'll find every reason not to. And there's no better example of this in the scripture than Jonah. Turn to Jonah chapter 1, and and while you do, let me tell you the story, the story of a guy who once applied for a job as an usher at a movie theater. And as part of the interview process, the manager asked him, "Um, so what would you do in case a fire breaks out? The young guy answered, well, you don't have to worry about me. I can get out fine. And yet, that's exactly how many of us today respond to a lost and dying world. Oh, I'm okay. I'm out. They're on their own, right? If you ask somebody, what would you do if Jesus came back tomorrow? I think they would probably respond, yeah, you don't have to worry about me. I'm fine. I'll be fine. But what is all too easy to forget, friends, is... You and I, we're the ushers. We are the ushers. In other words, it's not enough to just get yourself out. You and I are responsible for helping others know how to get out. All right, you should be at Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 reads like this. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord." Now, what we, what we don't yet know at this point is Jonah's reason for not wanting to go to Nineveh and preach against their wickedness and tell them how they can be saved. And, of course, you know, God sends a great storm. Jonah tells the sailors to throw them overboard. They do. God sends a fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah asks God for help. Three days later, he gets barfed up on the shore. Uh, Chapter three, seems like Jonah has has learned his lesson, you know, and he does what God has called him to do. He goes in there uh, and preaches um, uh, against the Ninevites' sin, and he calls them to repentance. 
And if we were to skip over then to Jonah chapter 3, verse 5, we read, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. The greatest being the king himself did this. Skip down to chapter 3, verse 10. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Hallelujah, right? I mean, that's amazing grace and what a tremendous news. I mean, how glorious to see the great love, grace, and mercy of God put on display and in such a vivid way. And you think, Jonah, man, he just must have been blown away. I mean, he must have been just amazed and thankful and joyful and just full of the grace of God. And, And I think to myself, he must have felt blessed that God used him and his evangelism to do it. When you think about it, Jonah had a front row seat, but he was actually then called out onto the the field to play a part in this tremendously great revival. Well, let's see what his reaction was. Turn to chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Wait a minute. I mean, say what? You know, how could this be? I mean, seriously, do we miss something here? How can Jonah possibly be angry? How can he be displeased over this tremendous work of God? As Vizzini and the Princess Bride would exclaim, inconceivable. We got to see what this is all about. Okay, let's look at verse 2. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. (coughs) For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And it's like, again, say what? What is wrong with this boy? I mean, isn't, isn't, isn't this what he... He should have imagined God to do? To show graciousness and compassion and be slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and show mercy instead of calamity? Isn't that what he should have expected? Yes. And maybe he, well, we know he imagined it, even expected it, but this is not what Jonah hoped for. This is not what he wanted to see happen. You go, come again? This is what was in Jonah's heart all along, friends. Going back to the beginning and why he didn't want to go in the first place. Jonah wanted these wicked, rebellious sinners who were enemies of God as well as enemies of Israel to be punished by God. Stick it to them, God. He didn't want them saved by God. He wanted to see them destroyed. And the fact is, he figured that God would have a gracious, merciful heart towards them. I'm sorry, can any of us identify with this? Lord, 
They don't deserve to be saved. Just wipe them off the face of the planet. Lord, please don't save a terrorist organization like Hamas. Just completely destroy it. Lord, don't save the criminals. They're getting what they deserve. Lord, don't save those who hate you with a, a, a worldview completely opposite from us. Just get rid of them. Lord, please don't save my neighbor who is a constant thorn in my flesh and just deserves his own medicine. Friends, let's be honest. There are those within our lives or not in our lives, that we either think we'll never repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus, or, or we don't even want them to repent and believe. Because like Jonah, we think they should get what they deserve. There are people out there that we see as being so heinous, so rebellious, so vile and grotesque that we don't want to see them saved. We just want to see God's wrath upon them. And while there is absolutely a place for loving the justice of God, as long as you and I are here walking on this earth, we have to make sure that first and foremost we have the heart of God towards his creation. The heart of God for the lost. The heart of God for people that were made in his very image just the same as you and I have been made in that image. You know, Jonah Jonah is so upset, he simply asks God to take him out. Take my life saying that death would be better than life. But instead, God does something different, doesn't he? He causes this, this plant to grow and to give shade to Jonah, which this pleases Jonah. It was hot out there, and, and, and it pleases him until God also then causes a worm to destroy the plant, followed by a scorching wind and sun to which Jonah then goes back to wanting his life ended. God then makes his point very clear to Jonah, and we see this in chapter 4, verse 9. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he, Jonah, said, I have good reason to be angry even to death. You better watch what you wish for, Jonah. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Friends, though there might be those that we are angry with, those that we might even despise, hate, and hope and pray that God will exact his justice upon them, this is not God's heart as we see from this text. Rather, every 
human being is one made in God's image because he designed it that way. And in that sense, every human life and every soul and spirit is precious to God. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself just as much as I'm preaching to you. God is by nature, as Jonah acknowledged, a a gracious and compassionate God. He is slow to anger, and he is abundant in loving kindness, and he is one who relents concerning calamity. And furthermore, in Scripture, we see that God has no desire for anyone to perish, but rather that they would all be saved. We see that in Ezekiel 18, verse 23, when God says, Do I have any pleasure on the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. And then in verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. We read in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, to this is in the context of praying for our authorities when Paul says, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or Peter in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9 when he says the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you. Not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance. Friends, if this is God's heart to save those who are lost Doesn't this mean that we too should have that very same heart? Even if we consider someone to be the worst of the worst, the most heinous, treacherous, despicable, or evil, we still must have that same heart as God toward the lost. Because here is the bitter truth Such were all of us. This is Titus 3 and verse 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That was me. That was me. You know, I'm the kid that grew up in the church. Grew up in the church thinking that I was a Christian. I was a good boy. I was a good kid, you know. I knew just how to kind of handle and deal with my parents. I knew how to be obedient and say yes to them and and all those things. But man, inside my heart, behind the scenes, wickedness. Grade school, potty mouth. Junior high, the lusts start to come in for the opposite sex. High school, more lusts and sins along the lines. I was away at high school, kind of like a boarding situation, but basically on my own. I was going through and doing and experiencing things that, you know, uh, kids do in college as a high schooler. I moved down to Los Angeles. Now you 
take all of those lusts of the flesh that have been cultivated the last, you know, six years or so, and now I have this, uh, this desire for all that Hollywood would offer me. Totally self-centered, self-absorbed, prideful, and selfish, and frankly, completely deserving of God's wrath. And all of this to say, we have to remember what we all came from, what we all were, because those sinners that we so often like to despise now, like Jonah, are nothing but us before we came to faith. And sure, maybe you've never killed anybody, and praise God, that's a good thing. But because of your anger, you have murdered. You have murdered in your heart. Maybe you've never committed physical adultery. That's a good thing, praise God. But because of your lust, you have committed adultery in your heart. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. Not meaning some had sinned and some hadn't, meaning for those different things. It's not that you committed all of those sins, but all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And guess what, friends? Any sin, one sin, is enough to send you and I to the fiery hell. You know when I realized this? It was right here in this church. There was a production that we had called Heaven's Gates and Hell's Flames. Back in the, I don't know, whenever we came here, mid-late 90s. And I sat right over there, right in that section with my wife, Julie. And we watched this this play take place that basically was a gospel presentation. And by the end of it, I knew I was a sinner and I was going to hell. I knew that's where I was going. There was just no doubt about it. And that night, praise God for his grace. He gave us the grace to to renounce our sin, to put our faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because we heard the gospel here. We heard the gospel. And we praise God for his tremendous mercy. As we read in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. God's heart is so full of compassion and it is so full of love and grace and tender mercies that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He went to the cross for us, not when we bettered ourselves or made ourselves better or got our acts together. He did it while we were wallowing in our sin, rebellious, snubbing our noses, shaking our fists at him. Okay, so now you have this new heart for the lost, right? Secondly, we have to have a heart for God's son. We have to have a heart for God's son Turn to Philippians 2 and verse 9. 
Philippians 2, verse 9. You know this passage. Here's another truth. If you don't also love Jesus, you won't love other people. You just won't. Consider the love God had for his son. Philippians 2 and verse 9, we read this. For this reason also God highly exalted him. The him is his son, Jesus. And bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Oh, we were singing that song this morning. I was loving it. I knew where we were coming. Which is above every name so that at the name of Jesus Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the fact that God has highly exalted the Son, it comes from a a compound word there meaning to elevate. But with the prefix high, above, meaning to highly elevate, to to raise highly above as God's Son, God incarnate, God in human flesh. He has highly elevated him. He has raised him up and raised him up above all else. So high is Jesus in his position that he receives praise, glory, and worship. He is in a position of renown, esteem, honor, authority, and power. Friends, if exaltation could be understood in the sense of wattage, I had to look this up, I am not an electrician. Jesus, of course, would not be some measly 25-watt bulb or a 50 or a 100 or even a 300 or 500-watt halogen bulb. These wattages are trite in comparison with the wattage of the sun, which, by the way, is 384.6 yottawatts of energy in the form of light and other forms of radiation. And who is it that we see that has exalted him? None other than God the Father, who happens to be, yes, his Father. Now, you remember that first phrase we had in the text, for this reason. This obviously tells us why God the Father has exalted his Son, for this reason. And I'll tell you up front here, it's not just simply the fact that the Father loves the Son, though this is true, but also because the Son did something that deserves His exaltation. He did something that so pleased the Father to no end, which then in turn causes the Father to exalt the Son. And to see what this is, we just need to take a little jog back to verses 5 to 8 of Philippians 2. Look at verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, the attitude being humility. Verse 6, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness 
of men being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross now for the purpose of of this message this morning we are not going to fully exposit this text it's a biggie but we will say this that as jesus existed in the form of god meaning he is of the same nature and essence of god fully and completely God, 100% God, the second member of the Trinitarian God, but who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. In other words, Jesus willingly subjected himself to the will of his Father, laying aside some of his rights and privileges as God. He was never not God, He was, but he condescended, he lowered himself by leaving that heavenly realm, abode, domain, and came to earth, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being made like you and I. So now we have Jesus putting on this, this new skin, so to speak, for a time, trading his crown and kingly robe for the humble uniform of a servant being found in appearance as a man that's God in human form who then humbled himself further by fulfilling his father's will of going to the cross and dying in our place for this reason you might remember Isaiah 53:10 which says the lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Or as 1 Peter, 1, uh, 1 Peter 2.24 says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. This exaltation was completed when Jesus resurrected and then, of course, ascended back up to heaven to sit at his Father's right hand. And this means that Jesus shares the place of sovereignty and authority and power and honor with his Father. Returning to Philippians 2.9, we see that the exaltation of Jesus comes when the Father bestowed on him the name which is above every name. Which name is that? Uh, It's so important. It's above every name. It's above a government official, a president or a premier. It's above a king or a queen. It's more important than the greatest athlete, actor, or singer. It is more esteemed than a poet, scholar, Pulitzer Prize winner, or Nobel laureate. His name is above every name. And of course, verse 11 tells us that Jesus Christ, yes, is the name, and Jesus Christ is Lord Curious. This name implies his sovereignty, authority, power, and honor. And we know this too because of the second key feature in Jesus' exaltation, which is the reaction of the people to the Son. 
back in verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He's quoting Isaiah 45 and verse 23. Every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So there is going to be a pretty amazingly humongo reaction to Jesus' exaltation. Because at that time, the knee will be bowed and the tongue confessing Jesus as Lord by those in heaven, believers as well as the heavenly host on earth, believers and unbelievers alike, and those who are already in the pit of hell will bow their knee and proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord Back in Philippians 2, 10 to 11. Here's the thing, though. Yes, there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord willingly or unwillingly. And it may be that those that are forced will start singing a different tune, kind of like the criminal who's terrorized everyone until the table gets turned. Suddenly there they are begging and whimpering for forgiveness. But at that point, it will be too late and they will be cast into the lake of fire. And of course, there will also be those who willingly, lovingly, and with great joy will bow their knees and confess with their tongues, Jesus Christ is Lord, and be welcomed into the celestial city, God's kingdom, His heavenly realm for all eternity. Remember a little while ago, we also learned that part of God saving humanity is all about him giving a gift to his son. He is going to give the gift of worshipers to his son. That is a saved humanity to his son. That is the bride of Christ so that we as that saved group of people would honor, glorify, and exalt the son forever. And the last feature here of Christ's exaltation, it's at the tail end of verse 11. It's all to the glory of God the Father. Simply put, the exaltation of the Son glorifies the Father. It brings Him honor, it brings Him praise, and it brings His own exaltation. And so all of this to say... Since this is God's heart to love a lost humanity, so much so that he would send his only begotten son to redeem that lost humanity, golly, shouldn't that be our heart as well? (laughs) It should, right? If we have God's son who is so willing to go to the cross for us on our behalf, shouldn't shouldn't that cause our hearts to just swell And of course, I can't help but think of the Grinch that stole Christmas when his heart was tiny. He went three sizes bigger that day. (laughs) 
Shouldn't our hearts long for and desire to see the lost come to faith? Acknowledging Christ as Lord, that they would become the bride of Christ so that the Son has worshipers. God's creation that will exalt and praise Him and in so doing bring much glory and exaltation to the Father. And how do we, how do we as believers cultivate this heart for the Son? Through the Word of God, through the Holy Spirit living inside of us, through even those spiritual disciplines that we're called to practice and participate in, like being here this morning, for you to hear the Word of God and to be profoundly moved and affected by it. So... I know you're looking at the clock and going, how is he going to get through two more points? They're quickie points. These, this, this, was, this, was the, this was the meat and potatoes were onto the dessert, okay? But thirdly, to have a heart for the gospel. We want to have a heart for the son, right? We want to have a heart for the lost. We have to, at some point, have a heart then for the gospel, the good news of the Son, right? As Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And for this, we look back at Titus chapter 3 and verse 5. Not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. In other words, friends, we can't save ourselves, right? And as I said, I, I, I prided myself on being a good person. Back in those days, I think it was like around junior high. And uh, at, our, at our, the church that I grew up in, in, um, in the North State, it was a Presbyterian church. And at one point, they decided to allow the, the students, like junior high, high school age, to become actual members of the church. And so we went through this kind of membership class and stuff. And one night, I'll never forget, we're sitting in my friend's house, and we're all kind of in a circle, and the pastor of the church is there now. Not just the youth guy, the pastor. And he wants us to go around and share our testimony. I was like, what's he talking about? <laughs> you know, and I'm listening to my, my pal who went before me, you know, and then I'm next, and I'm basically doing a, yeah, what he said kind of thing. And, and it basically what I remember is I resulted to my works. I, you know, I, I, I try to be a good kid and, you know, obey my parents and, you know, things like that. I can't remember if they let me be a member or not. That, that would be interesting to find out, huh? <laughs> Titus 3 and verse 5 continues, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's what we should be excited over, right? That we have been regenerated and renewed and justified and been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So fast forward in my own life. Here I am now, saved from the heaven's uh, gates and hell's uh, flames gospel message. In that moment, sitting right over there with Julie, both of us... um, got washed of our sin, regenerated, born again by the Holy Spirit, poured out upon us through Jesus, our Savior, justified, made righteous in God's eyes by his grace, and now even adopted by the Father, an heir to the hope of eternal life. But now the real growth begins, right? 
sanctification, which is also the good news of the gospel. Not only does he save us, he sanctifies us. And, you know, it, it, for me, it was taking all this head knowledge that I had growing up, and the head knowledge finally goes where? Into my heart. And we saw friendships change. We saw our church involvement change and increase because we wanted it to. And, and you know, we're attending Bible studies now. And, and we go to a marriage retreat where we learn about God has to be first in all aspects of our life, including our marriage. Oh, my gosh, light bulb moment, you know. And then God, uh, um, I slowly allow God to kind of take over my career as an actor. And then um, discipleship. Uh, it took place with um, with with Brock and and the, the example of other men and and I finally get that call to leave the acting world for ministry and I I go to seminary and I have the blessing of being the junior high pastor here and then Weaverville calls and we go up there and then back to Calvary Bible Church and here we are we love it now not, not 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 for that reason we just love being here but the gospel saves gang. The gospel saves, and the gospel sanctifies. And when those truths penetrate your heart, how can we not have a heart for it? When you see the change in you, how can you not have a heart for the gospel? And lastly, it's having a heart for evangelism, right? And this is Titus 3, verse 1, which says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. This goes back to my opening thing of the life of example. Because this is now what we are to be. As believers, we are to be examples of, to each other, yes, but really out there in the world to be an example of Christ. We are to live like this so that those people outside those doors will see that. I know we've said this a lot and we're saying it again. We, we want the world to take notice. That's that, that light of the world, the city on a hill, right? As a church, but as individuals now. And what a, what a unique and tremendous opportunity, Christmas time, to be able to do that. Now is not the time for us to kind of get shy and kind of, you know, well, the world hates Christians right now and I just kind of want to be quiet, just mind my own business and we'll celebrate the holidays. And No, it's not the holidays, it's Christmas and it's happening right now. And it needs to happen for the next several weeks and then beyond, of course. But man, you, you know, nobody's going to think it's strange if you mention Jesus right now. They might not like it, but they're not going to think you're, it's strange, you know. There has to be some part of them that expects it. So man, let's take up the opportunity and let's do it, right? Let's get the name of Jesus out there. And let's have a, a glorious Christmas where, where we see people come to faith or you see your neighbor join you at the Christmas concert or you, you, know, you invite somebody to church or you have that chance to take some cookies over and take over a, you know, a gospel tract and, and invite them to the concert and, you know, that even that neighbor that's been the thorn in your flesh, man, break down those walls. Cookies will do it, okay? It'll do it. Guaranteed. But let's do whatever we can to be bold with the name of Jesus. 
And maybe you need to believe in the name of Jesus first and foremost. And I pray this is the day of your salvation. That right here, right now, this morning, you will repent and put your faith, hope, and trust in Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross on your behalf. All it is is you praying that prayer of repentance. Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me of my sin. And I believe that Jesus is my Savior and all that he didn't accomplish on that cross. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the morning. And Lord, I, I know I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to these dear, lovely friends and family of the church. Help us all, Lord, to be bold with the name of Jesus. That it would be our honor and privilege to see knees bow and tongues confess that Jesus is Lord before it's too late. We pray this all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.